0: While Monocle's House View goes on holiday this week, we're looking back to our series, The Golden Age of Aviation, which aired last summer. You can subscribe to the whole programme at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Monocle's House View will be back next Monday. You are listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. This programme tells all those stories, from technological developments and engineering innovators, to those fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits who literally and metaphorically defined a new era of travel, and those storied brands that embodied the very essence of the Golden Age. We'll hear from the people who know the history, the personalities and the legends better than anyone else. We'll bring you unprecedented access as we meet those that flew and were flown. Visit the airframe makers who helped to make the globe smaller and sit down to talk with the designers and marketers that sold the world the dream. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Brightling, and I'm Chloe Potter. On the programme today, we're going to be talking airline campaigns and we'll meet a Cantonese pop star who in the 1970s wrote an entire album as part of an elaborate publicity stunt for Cathay Pacific and performed it on a flight to Australia. Stay tuned to hear that story. But first, we speak to cultural commentator, author and broadcaster Peter York, who tells Tom Edwards about the style of selling the aviation dream in the so-called golden era.
1: Well, Peter, why don't we just start off with a sort of general point, and you have sort of alluded to this and been explicit about it, in fact, already before we started the recording. What were the drivers at the start of this sort of golden age? Obviously, post-war, there were all kinds of advances at the start of the jet age. But in terms of airlines and travel by air, what was shaping that? Very different, I guess, depending on where in the world you were, perhaps?
2: It depended where you were in the world, and it depended how big a place it was and how cut off and whether you were in a vast place like the USA or Australia, where you had to fly. You know, if you're going to get from one end of Australia to another, you had to fly. Ditto in America. So internal flights were big business early on and they introduced lots of people, including commuting businessmen. Remember, business flyers as well as holiday flyers or other kinds of flyers. That introduced them, whereas little English people took a long time to get used to the idea of flying. They took a long time to get used to the idea of going to foreign countries, for the most part. And in fact, I guess that after the war, probably British people travelled less than they did, let's say, in 1910. People forget that large numbers of middle-class Brits who were ruling the world in 1910 would have been going off on big ships all the time. Certainly my granny was. Brits moved around a lot. And then... After the war, they didn't. You know, It was rather exciting to, I don't know, to go to Tunbridge World. <laughs> well, to that point about almost having to, I guess, educate
1: a generation of travellers about what flying could do, do you think that there was an education too, and maybe we see this through the branding that began to really blossom through the 50s in particular, wherever you were in the world, educating travellers, prospective travellers by air about Not just the function of travel,
2: but the romance of air travel as well. You had to do two things, but you could see different brand strategies at different points in time from different airlines, but you had to reassure people. You had to say, it's safe, it's okay. So there was a very basic thing. You look at old things, they say, four engines. If one falls off, it'll be all right. And then there were things, the reassurance thing, it'll be okay. People will be nice to you, you know, in an unjudgmental way. And that thing of introducing people to luxury, people will observe your every whim. Nice but rather virginal, mums, slightly mumsy women will cater to your every need. And that was the first sort of thing of reassurance. Then there was an aspirational cell that said particularly to Americans, you're going somewhere exotic. Then there was snobby stuff, the extreme aspirational stuff. There was one American airline which said, you know, if you go club, the food will be done by maxims of Paris. Just think, maxims of Paris, home of film stars and plutocrats, they're doing the food for you. So all sorts of aspirational stuff. Everyone looking tremendously dressed up all the time. So much of what we've
1: been talking about in this series is unashamedly nostalgic. I mean, the whole Mm. premise really Mm. is the golden age, which involves this sort of harking back to a degree. Do we collectively lose something as a travelling global population because we lose some of the mystique, that exoticism you talked Mm. about, Peter? I mean, not to look through rose-tinted spectacles, but... Isn't travel better when it has some of that allure and a bit of mystery and a bit of a bit of glamour, a bit of sex? I mean, what do we lose if
2: the travel becomes completely divorced from those, those sorts of experiences? I, I think, well, of entitlement and casualisation, I am uh, in principle against casualisation. I am currently wearing a, a type of footwear with a white sole. That's as far as I go. <laughs> that is as far as I go. I never uh, thought
1: I'd see the day, Peter. I must no. Say.
2: I think... People have to make up a few dreams for themselves and collude with each other, you know. Having a collective dream is part of the fun of being alive. And being too blasé does spoil the fun. The fantastic fun for all sorts of people about certainly long-haul travel, not business commutes, but about long-haul travel was the idea of an exotic destination, very high class surroundings somehow. You would be in a bubble of classiness. The obvious example being great luxury liners. How can you reproduce that in a plane? They tried. Hyper super service. Your every need attended to. You just sat there like a pudding and applied with hospitality and you applied <laughs> yeah. with hospitality and of course I I know when I first started going on those marvelous things called Pan Am and TWA to America God I loved every bit of it so much and the possibility of an upgrade if we could work out how to do it and the plying and the drinking and the whole luxury of the thing and of course, TWA went into that wonderful building, the Saarinen building, which was just, must have inspired Zaha Hadid, mustn't it? Those two flanges. That was marvellous. And every time I did it, I loved it. It didn't wear out on me. I didn't get at all blasé about it. And I was sad when I couldn't do it. <laughs> They'd gone. I you know, both those marvellous bits of American internationalism had disappeared. And so if you can't collude in a bit of luxury, in a knowing illusion that you're all sharing in, it's like, you know, the wonder that is, I don't know, going to a royal reception. We're all colluding in a completely wonderful thing and it's a lot of fun. Well, Peter, let's do a slightly vainglorious and perhaps... Go on, yes, An almost, boring, and, and, and what almost I like. pointless exercise yes. then. What no, would no. be
1: the sort of the Peter York fantasy composition then of an airline? What would be the branding? What would be the era? Maybe the aircraft, mm. certainly the destination. You talk with such warmth and fondness about the and uh, facility yes. in New York, of course. Would that be it? Would it be somewhere else? Would it be an exotic destination? If you could sort of make a little amalgam, what might it look like?
2: Well, I'm very sorry that I never went on Concorde and now I can't that's a misery. I can remember in my business that my business partner would have to say to us, the other two business partners, I'm going to have to get to New York very quickly and I'm thinking of going Concord. Is that all right by you? Because it, it meant he was spending more money. So we tease him and say, oh, no, I don't think we can do it. But, all right, go, go on. But I never did. However... You know, the glory of speed compared with a luxury brand in wide-bodied 747s, I think I'd prefer to revitalise Pan Am TWA with a completely clunkily pretentious but tasty meal, you know, (laughs) by Maxims of Paris. (laughs) And you get in, you know, the sort of thing that Andy Warhol typically would have advertised. Maxims of Paris... It's 1978. We're going into Kennedy and to that marvellous building. And it'll be wonderful.
0: Plenty of publicity stunts are implemented by airlines to lure passengers on board. Air Canada gave unexpected expats in London free flights back to Canada for Christmas, and Richard Branson has come up with a vast amount of tricks for Virgin, like imprinting his own face on in-flight ice cubes and taunting a rival airline with a blimp flyby. However, none are quite as elaborate as Cathay Pacific's 1974 campaign, for its their new route from Hong Kong to Sydney. They hope to take on quite Qantas with a new plane, the Boeing 707. Cathay Pacific sent a group of its own pilots and flight attendants on a tour of Australia with leading Cantonese pop star and actress Frances Yip and a 22-man Gurkha pipe band. Francis Yip recorded a Cathay Pacific branded album called Discovery with a title track about flying with the airline and other songs portraying destinations on the network. They were all part of a Cathay Pacific show in which Francis sang and the flight attendants took to the catwalk wearing their national costumes. Monocle Sydney correspondent Clarissa Seabag-Montefiore caught up with Francis Yip to find
3: out about that musical journey. I started with Cafe Pacific in 1972, I think. I sang their first ever jingle. In those days, they were still flying converse and they wanted a jingle and their, the slogan they most often use is discovery. They have discovery tours and they encourage people to discover a, a bigger world. So the theme of the jingle was called discovery. And I sang that and they were very pleased with it. And in 1973, they offered me a job as um, a goodwill ambassador to promote Hong Kong as a destination in travel conventions basically around the world. I was very young, I was already singing and I wanted to see the world. So I left my job at the Hong Kong bank. I was a secretary there. And then I joined Cathay as a sales promotions officer, the correct title. But what I used to do was to go around in all the travel conventions and sing on Hong Kong nights, go on the radio to talk about Hong Kong, go on television to talk about Hong Kong and basically introduce Hong Kong as a travel destination to people all around the world.
0: And what was it like being on the actual plane? How
3: long were you on for? And, and,
0: and you were with the air hostesses and the pilots and a band as well. Tell me about that.
3: <laughs> well, actually, um, when I was with Cathay, I knew most of the stewardesses because when I joined them, they were not a very, very huge company as they are now. And it was wonderful. It was there's a great group and family teamwork feeling. One of the things that we used to do with CAFE was to hold a big promotion about Hong Kong with the Hong Kong police band. And they were perfect Chinese faces, but they play bagpipes and, you know, they're basically uh, formed like the Gurkhas. Um, They play bagpipes, they play drums, and it's a marching band. So it's a little bit unusual to have a singer singing with them. And we've been to so many places it started in 74. The first tour we did was to Sydney when they launched the Sydney service. And we did the six-city tour in Australia. That was also my first trip to Sydney. And we had the stewardesses and we had the, um, the police band with us. I was able to break out of Hong Kong with them and work all over the world. On the, this tour with the police band,
0: the Gurkha, the 22-man Gurkha, pipe band, the flight attendants took part in fashion shows wearing their national costumes. Can you just paint a scene for us about what
3: that was like? Basically, we would have a party in each of the major cities we go to, and it would be a Hong Kong theme. And then early in the evening, uh, before the guests would sit down, the pipe and drum band would come in. And it's actually very impressive because you've got, you know, 40 odd people doing bagpipes and trumpets and, you know, coming in, "Ah, these Scottish tunes, you know, Loch Lomond and all sorts of, you'll take the high road and I'll take the low road, you know, (laughs) and marching in and you get the attention. And then the stewardesses would be in all their national costumes and then I, I also act as a bit of an MC and I would invite them onto the stage to greet everybody in their national language and and talk a little bit about their costume. And I remember one of the Japanese stewardesses is wonderful. She's got a wicked sense of humor. And I said to her, I said, oh, this is a wonderful costume. Is it true that it takes a long time to put a kimono on properly? And she said, oh, yes, sometimes it could take as long as 30 to 40 minutes to get it all right, you know, complete with the hair. So I said, oh, then it must be very troublesome to take it off. And she said, oh, it depends on who I'm taking it off for. (laughs) I thought that was a wonderful answer (laughs) and everybody enjoyed it. Kowloon, Kowloon, Hong Kong, we like Hong Kong. That's a place for you. One of the first projects I was given to do when I joined CAFE, they asked me if I could record a collection of songs taken from each of the country the airline was servicing and I said yes very boldly without really understanding you know, how much was involved in the work. Then started the long track of writing to all the countries to each manager in each port to say, make a suggestion of what should be recorded. Then I also had to travel to each place to negotiate with some of the writers if they were still alive. If it was the copyright was in public domain, then that was all right. Some of them are nursery rhymes. And I can remember going into the studio. This is, I joined Kathy in April, April 1st, 1973. And we were in the studio by July and it was ready by uh, by October and they were so delighted with it they said right we want to release this in Ear My Asia. For me this record introduced me to Asia. I sold more albums in Thailand than The Carpenters (laughs) at the same time because they've never had a foreigner who recorded a Thai song with a Western angle of the music. The song that I chose from Thailand is called Boa Khao, which means a white lotus. And it's a song that many people from different generations would know it. It's supposedly written by a prince. It's also a bit like a nursery rhyme. And it describes a lotus growing out of the mud and how beautiful it is and clean and precious. I think I had an accent and the Thais found that incredibly cute. (laughs) So I became known as the the Lotus Lady uh, or the girl, Lotus Girl. And I can remember um, after it sold so many records, when I went to Thailand for the first time in 1975, I sang in a stadium. And when I arrived at the airport, I was mobbed like the Beatles. I was totally flabbergasted. <laughs> but on the album, we always start with uh, a, the, the theme for the airline. So the first jingle I sang for them is Discovery. Smiling faces, going places, don't be sad, mm-hmm, pack your bag. Cathay Pacific way to fly, Discovery. <laughs> And that's on Discovery One, which was recorded in 1973. And then we have a song from Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Taiwan we sang in Mandarin and the Philippines, Malaysia and Indonesia is the same language it's the Bahasa. And then from Hong Kong, we chose Kowloon, Hong Kong, which is a very catchy little ditty that everybody knows how to sing. I'm sure you've heard of it. Kowloon, Kowloon, Hong Kong, we like Hong Kong that's a place for you. It's very cute. Do you think this trip worked for Cathay? Did it Did it put Cathay Pacific on the map? Well, um, for many years, whenever I sang anywhere, if I'm doing a big concert, Cathay Pacific would be a sponsor because uh, they need to fly me in either from Hong Kong or from wherever. And they would, come in as a sponsor either with a ticket or uh, some sort of advertising sponsorship. So my identity with Cathay has always been quite firm and I don't think I have been represented I, I don't think I've ever represented any other airline. In fact I'm going to have a concert in June in Sydney on the 23rd of June at the Stark um, Event Centre <laughs> Cathay Pacific is a sponsor <laughs> So my identity with them and my loyalty with them has always been uh, very strong. Smiling faces, going places
0: Back down to earth now, and posters for the big airlines during this mid-century period are some of the most iconic pieces of design, sought after by both aviation and graphics fans today. From the bright and bold iconography of Air France to the classic Super 60s designs of Pan Am, these posters were vivid and the artwork and typography are still highly influential now. Many of these posters are documented in the book Airline Visual Identities 1945-1975 to 1975. and Monocle's Tom Edwards spoke to the author, Matthias Huner.
1: Matthias, just to get started, um, I was quite struck. Rereading the book uh, ahead of this chat, um, I was taken by something that you mentioned actually in the, in the introduction to the piece where a lot of people we've spoken to on this show have talked about the, the jet age and the advances in technology. But you, right up front, you talk about how this was a period of extraordinary change in terms of corporate identity and branding. And, and and in a sense, I guess, if we look at airline identities, that's as important, or would you even say more important than the technological advances?
4: Well, the technological advances were probably uh, slightly more important for the airline industry, uh, especially the change from the propeller aircraft to the jets in the uh, late nineteen fifties. Well, it actually started in the early fifties, but uh, the jet age was nineteen fifty eight, by all uh, economic standards. And uh, at the same time, the air the airlines were thinking about how to reimagine their uh, visual identities to match the new speed and the new look of the aircraft. And uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the design also changed. But there were some others as well.
1: Was your enthusiasm for this peaked originally by the romance of air travel? Or was it about the posters? You talk about acquiring uh, uh, posters and finding these amazing little slices of history, you know, wonderful graphics. They're so rich uh, in, in terms of the, 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 the visual impact. Was it was it the visual identity really more than the romance of travel that, that was your the origin story of your own passion?
4: Yes, it was. It was actually a single item that I found, uh, I guess it must have been 10-12 years ago now, and and that ignited my interest because you could really tell it was a poster from uh, the 1950s by Air France, I saw it somewhere in Paris, and you could really tell that it was such a different, much more special time uh, to fly, and these days of course it has become very common to fly, um, there's really no, no romance uh, in flying anymore in my opinion, But uh, at the time, it was quite different, and uh, I started to do uh, some research into this specific design, then some more research, and I discovered that this is really a huge uh, topic and something I became very interested in.
1: And one thing that really almost leaps off the page of, of your book, Mattis, is the way that brands used often just a single word. You know, they would have the destination and then a striking visual image, and that was that. No bells and whistles, no embellishments. Um, Again, is there something for, I don't know if you're a a visual design purist, but there seems to be something truer about reflecting a place by just having the name and one striking image. Have we lost some clarity, perhaps, with all the complexities of our communication in the modern age?
4: Um, Possibly we have, but uh, your specific example, of course, uh, is very true. There were some Uh, outstanding and very uh, reduced designs and uh, they're just stunning to look at today but they were in part the result of regulation of course Uh, the airline industry at the time did not compete about prices as it does today it was mostly regulated in terms of prices and destinations Uh, you could not just fly anywhere as uh, the airlines can today and, and therefore, they had to focus on other factors, so mostly destinations which were much more exotic than than they are today. Everyone these days uh, travels to to Australia as if it were next door almost. But at the time, the new destinations were exciting. And if you look at those images from the 1950s and 60s and even uh, the 70s, you can feel that the distance and the exotic uh, character of these uh, destinations was was uh, felt uh, quite different by the, by the public. But then, of course, in the late 70s with uh, deregulation, um, the advertising and the focus become all about uh, price and only the least expensive aircraft um, carrier, um, uh, sorry, um, um, airline was able to compete successfully.
1: And what, what prospects do you think there are to to return to this sort of clarity, I mean, I sense from what you say about deregulation, the market as it is now, the complexities of message people are trying to communicate, will maybe never again have images like like this in in terms of corporate branding and identities. Is this a time? I don't know. Is it is it is it gone forever? I suppose I'm asking.
4: I'm afraid so. I'm afraid that um, those times are gone for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the deregulation of the industry. Uh, the other is, of course, the different methods of advertising. Now everything is online and it's much more difficult to do something reflective uh, online. The posters and the other um, items in my in my book are printed items and some of them are quite large scale. They were advertising them in, in magazines but also in travel agencies. All of that infrastructure has become much smaller and it's mostly online these days. So. Um, I I suppose um, that part of the industry is probably gone forever, I'm afraid.
1: Uh, well, well, given then that strikes a slightly sort of nostalgic tone, Matthias. what about, I'll, I'll set you a different challenge. What if you were able to go back uh, to any part of this period, you know, your 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 book is kind of post-war through to the mid-70s, and, and take a flight on one of these? You know, would it be a Braniff Airways flight in the 50s out of Chicago? Uh, if you could go anywhere on one of these carriers, if you had a time machine, where
4: would you head? I would take uh, Air France Concorde from Paris to New York, because I regret that I never did that, and that's another very, very romantic trip in the Concorde that uh, I'm afraid we don't have these days, and that's a step uh, backward. And another flight that probably would be quite interesting would be uh, across the Atlantic or any other long-distance route, for that matter, in an old... uh, pre-Jet H aircraft, a propeller aircraft, with uh, stops at various destinations and so on. That would also be quite amazing.
1: Well, yeah, romantic possibly. I'm not sure I've got the stomach for those turbo props, Matthias. And just finally, Matthias, what about the the legacy? If, if we go back to the premise, I guess, of your book, which is this thing about airline visual identity, um how do we or do you do you think that we do still see that legacy whether it's in aviation in other businesses more broadly if we look at the whole world of corporate comms and visual communications do, do you think the legacy does is still felt very profoundly
4: I personally think so I think when I see certain airlines I I still uh, see where they're coming from but uh, of course, Maybe I have some prejudice having written this particular um, book uh, and I, I actually have the knowledge uh, where they do come from. I'm not sure if that's the perception these days, uh, to be honest. And and the other question is, of course, is that really still so important to have all these different characteristics when now um, you know everything uh, in air travel has become so standardized? Um, do people really want that? I sometimes wonder, because if they did, then the airlines would try to differentiate better than they do. In reality, it all is uh, quite homogeneous, in my opinion.
0: Brings us to the end of this episode of the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I'm Chloe Potter. Thanks too to Tom Edwards. Join us again in two weeks' time, but until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed next, bon voyage.